Please do turn uh, to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at the last few verses and into uh, chapter 20. Uh, if you uh, open up the Pew Bible, the black Bible there in front of you, it should be on page 879, I believe. The title of uh, the sermon this morning is Jesus Challenged. <laughs> it could be part one uh, because we're going to see uh, another wave and another wave and another wave. Jesus is not averse uh, to conflict. Uh, Jesus, not in any way. In fact, right now he's getting even more controversial uh, there's there's a, a boldness to the approach that Jesus has. And uh, what are we to do with it? Well, what are people to do with it in response to that? Well, we can even re- retrace back to uh, the, the previous uh, portion of chapter 19 and the triumphal entry, we call it. At the beginning of that week, Jesus' Passion Week, there is singing and celebration. Hosanna, there's the waving of palm branches and people praising him. Glory to God in the highest, Hosanna. At the end of the week, what do we hear They're shouting, give us Barabbas because we want to crucify him. Crucify this Jesus. Where are you? Um, In in all honesty, you may, uh, in in, in all honesty, with your priorities, with your words, with your thoughts, your deeds, where, where, where are you? Are you somewhere in the middle with some apathy? Well, Jesus uh, communicated, as I highlighted last week, we would ultimately communicate to them and to us. Please, by all means, either kill me or crown me, but for heaven's sake, don't just tolerate me. And that's what we want to do sometimes. We want to say, Jesus, let me keep you, I, you know, and, and by all means, don't, don't just tolerate me and please don't hire me. I, I don't need to be uh, just your coach or your counselor or your guide or your shepherd. Yes, 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 your friend, my savior. I want Jesus to be my savior. yes. Yes, all of those things. Wonderful counselor that he is and provider and coach and friend. But first, I want to be your king, Jesus would say to us. Hebrews 11, that's not our passage, but uh, just to read this one or two verses. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe For our God is a consuming fire. Okay, let let, let that sit for just a second. I don't think we're talking about, you know, the American fire pit, cozy, warm kind of thing. We're talking about the purity of the radiance of the beauty of the holiness of a God who has a refining fire, who clears away. The impurities and God's spirit, I pray this morning, would warm our hearts that even the cold parts, the apathetic parts, that he would shine light into places maybe that are are dark and recessed. He can do that. Well, let's look at his word. I know you just sat down. Let me invite us to stand and read this beginning in verse 45. Hear this. This is the word of God. And he, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've turned it and made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. 
chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced, convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask God's help. Lord, I ask that you would help us to both hear uh, and to heed what you want us, that we might be a people who are uh, not only hearers, but doers of your word. Help us to see Jesus and, and to not resist our need for him. Help us to do what Jesus has called us to do with Jesus' help. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you go up to someone, you say, you know what? You're a fraud. You're, you're, a, you're, you're, you're an imposter. You're a liar. You, you better know with an a- allegation or accusation like that, you better know what you're saying, how you're saying it, and certainly to whom you're saying it. You may have seen this. There's these clips, YouTube videos now that people have collected. But this was one of the original ones, I think, where they found a guy. These are two military officers. Uh, and they found, a, guy, they found a, a man, these two Marines. They found this sergeant major who was highly decorated at a public event. And they went up to him and they started to ask him a few questions. Something seemed a bit fishy. There were certain medals and there was, there was they, even as he began to answer questions, they, they thought, oh, okay, that, that, that sounds legit. What battalion? What, you know, what, who, who was your commander? What was your this? And oh, on this, this award, what did you get that for? And in what battle? And he started to try to point it out. And man, some things just, and you get all of this on video. And you can see the tension building. You can see the countenance changing. And they, they do. They say, look, he would say something like, yeah, what's this award? He says, well, that's a, that's a silver star. And they say, no, actually, that's a bronze star. You don't know what you're talking about because you're a fraud. It actually used to be a crime. It used to be a crime to impersonate, uh, you know, a highly decorated or, you know, some other uh, officer in uh, the army or other uh, branches of the armed forces. 2006, 2006, Congress, that was called the, the Stolen Valor Act. It's since been turned over. Uh, I think it was in 2012 because of on the basis of free speech. So it's no longer a felony to impersonate someone who is a military officer. Uh, I'm glad it's still a crime to impersonate a, a, you know, a police officer. <laughs> I think that's something we would agree. It's not, not a good idea. Uh, but here it is, right? You know, there's, there's, this, there's this crime that, that we would say is an inappropriate thing. Now, Jesus, in Old Testament times, the reason I set that up is to say that it's something akin to this. Because the high crime would have been uh, blasphemy to be claim, claiming to be uh, God. The very thing that is, that very thing is, is trans. Uh, trans here because they're questioning Jesus in such a way to get him to claim that he is God because they're utterly convinced 
He, of course, is not. He is not the Son of Man, the Son of God, or Messiah. So they want to expose him, and they want him to say it so that they can, as this verse told us in chapter 19, uh, verse 47, that they can destroy him to get him aside. That's why they question. They're trying to, in chapter 20, when they ask him, tell us by what authority you do this, in those opening verses, they're, they're trying to trap him. They're, they're trying to catch him. Of course, he's already demonstrated he's, he's remarkably clever, and he has ways of turning questions into questions and evading certain things. He also has a way of being very bold, is, is coming into focus more and more. Two themes that I see here. Uh, one theme is the irony of their opposition, which I'll highlight, and the other is the authority of our Lord. Now, I'm not going to take these in direct order. I'm just saying, hey, for, for the sake of your understanding, here are the two themes. I've got them listed there in the order of service. The two things are irony of their, the irony of their opposition and the authority of our Lord Jesus. Now, when I say the irony of their opposition, who is their, uh, these people? Well, in verse 47 of chapter 19 and then the opening of chapter 20, the primary audience to which Jesus is speaking and the people questioning him are the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious leaders of the day. They are linked even with the Roman uh, occupation, they are linked very heavily to political power. They like that. They're primarily the judges on matters of Jewish law. They know the Old Testament very well. Uh, at times, they're quite self-righteous about how they keep that law. Their focus uh, is on part of their performance and observance. They know the truth of the doctrine. They claim that they take it very, very seriously, at least in thought and in external deeds. But they... they, they they cannot, or should I say, will not see Jesus as the fulfillment of all those messianic promises, a Messiah. Now, not to overdo political analogies today, but we're coming up on tax season, right? So here's, here's what I want to, for those of you who are part of uh, uh, maybe a generation of mine or older, you might remember back in the 90s, we had uh, a presidential election that involved uh, you know, a third party candidate. Does anyone remember who that was? Ross Perot. Thank you. I, I, I love this. Uh, he was he, he was kind of like Zacchaeus. I won't say anything else, um, but uh, just trying to tie it in the Bible. OK, so uh, Ross Perot was a successful Texas businessman. And I remember that even as a young man in high school, watching that election and the debates and everything. And all of his campaign stump speeches that his big thing was financial reform, which is probably a good thing. And his solution was everybody should be able to do their taxes on this. He wasn't talking about a, a book this big of tax code. He was talking about an index card. You should be able to do your taxes on an index card. Now I know it's tax season, so we're already thinking about that a little bit. We thought, That's a great solution. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But here's the problem. There's a lot of people that don't want it to be that simple. Now, I'm not trying to make any political commentary whatsoever, but let's just face the fact that even if that is a great solution, the simplification of that, there are a lot of people whose entire livelihood, whether they're accountants or attorneys or lobbyists or, or tech software writers that depend upon a very, very, very complicated tax code, would you agree? And again, I'm not trying to make any political commentary, but you do see the, 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 the intertwining of that. So now imagine an Old Testament uh, law and, and observances layered on that from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that they want to protect something that their livelihood 
and their power depends upon greatly. In religious worship, they're struggling for power. Jesus is questioning it. They know that if Jesus is Messiah and King, they will lose. And Jesus here is angry. This is the second time that he's been so appalled that he goes in and starts to cleanse and to clear out the temple. Now, the temple had the temple mount in Jerusalem and then the structure of that had courts. One of those outer courts is where Jesus finds himself right now, where they're doing this money changing and selling of goods. Now, lest we think that Jesus, like I said last week, yes, is humble, but that does not mean that he is modest uh, and meek and weak and doesn't have any power. He does. And he comes in boldly here and he's saying, look, this is my house and I'll rearrange the furniture just like I want to. He comes in. Now, by the way, under Old Testament law, God did desire. God prescribed uh, under Old Testament uh, religious, you know, the, the, the celebration of feast and the atoning of sins that we would, the people of God would bring sacrifices. So there's nothing wrong, by the way, that people entered in. This is during the Passover. There are a lot of people in the city of Jerusalem, some of them traveling from very far off, some of them not even speaking uh, fluently the language and, and coming with, with, with other goods and, and currencies. And so they enter into the temple courts and that outer court where uh, the, only the Gentiles, that's the farthest that the Gentiles could go. It would be totally appropriate uh, for people to say, listen, I, I, I need to acquire a dove or some, or some wine or some oil that I could go and make a sacrifice to God. But that's not the problematic thing. The the problematic thing, as many scholars have suggested, is that many in that court were in the business of extortion. And then they would say, oh, well, no, your money and your goods, they're they're, they're not acceptable here. We've already checked with the religious leaders, so would you please, uh, you know, we're going to exchange your money into these exorbitant rates so that people are basically becoming broke just to worship as they have been told. They're not facilitating worship. They're exploiting people. And they're doing that in conjunction with the leaders and the priests because of the love of money. Furthermore, they're set up, like I said, in that outer court where Gentiles would be able to gather. And they're, and they're obstructing their ability to worship. Now, you, you, you heard it earlier read, right? And Jesus is quoting from it directly because he knows the word that well. It was the prophet Isaiah. There's actually two parts. He quotes from Jeremiah and Isaiah. We read Isaiah 56 uh, earlier, right? And in that, we're told that God desires burnt offering and sacrifices at his altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, peoples. So Jesus is reminding them that what you're doing right here is obstructing Others, Jesus is angry because you're excluding people. This is this is a religious activity to bring you know honor and glory to God. This is you're not doing it God's way. And so he's expelling he's expelling one group and clearing them out, and he's welcoming in another group, not a group that you might expect. By the way, they would not have expected it. It's the weak, it's the lame, it's. It's the outsiders, the Gentiles. It's, it's, he's welcoming. This is already the pattern of Jesus' ministry. He's welcoming the needy. He's saying to the children, you come to all. He is being, uh, he's welcoming of those that they are inadvertently excluding. 
The leaders are outraged. So in verse 47, they hear him teaching. They want to, they want to destroy him. Why? They, do they want to destroy him because he's a false teacher? Do they want to destroy Jesus because he's claiming to be God? No. They want, they don't care about the, the truth or the, the falsehood of that. They're concerned with power. Because as Jesus' popularity grows, and as he taught with authority here, he's a threat, like I said earlier, to their power, to their position. So here's the, here's the irony of their opposition. They're saying, listen, it's our job. Uh, we're, you know, sorry, but we're going to have to do this. We have to steward and be good managers of the temple. And so this is just us doing our job. We have to collect these. You know, we have to, we have to do these exchange rates and collect these things. And Jesus, you're not supposed to be in here. And what do you think you're doing? And who has the authority here? All this is going on because we are the ones preserving the true worship of God. We're the ones who really care about this. We're the ones protecting and preserving and, and making sure that things. And Jesus says, don't you see the irony of it? I'm the temple, and you're trying to destroy me. The temple was a sign. Initially, it was the tent of meeting in the tabernacle, and it became a little more permanent with the building of a temple. Remember when Jesus said, this is, this is very explicit in John 2. Jesus says to the, to the religious leaders, he says, you tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. And they say, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this thing. And you're going to just rebuild it in three days? Jesus was referring to his body, his resurrected body. Jesus was saying so clearly that he is the temple. There was a foreshadowing. There was a, there was, the, the temple represented God's presence on earth. And that's precisely Jesus. It was all in preparation for the coming of the Christ Messiah. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm the final temple. All people are welcome here. And that at my expense, not paying these exorbitant rates and doing all of this commercial enterprise that you guys are curious and so focused on. Now, chapter 20, they open with this challenge to him. Verse two, they ask the question, Tell us, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things and who gave it to you? Interesting. They're anticipating an answer they're hoping for. um, And they already know what Jesus thinks concerning his own identity. It's not that puzzling. In fact, earlier, we we know he was very explicit. Uh, There's an example. I'll just choose one. And that's in Luke chapter 11. Uh, Jesus does miraculous things. One of the things that he does, people who are troubled and burdened with, uh, with demon possession, he casts out those demons. I don't know how that manifested or presented itself exactly every time, but there were times that Jesus cast out demons and people were really grateful for that. And so they can't deny the religious leaders and the scribes as much as they hate his popularity and his teaching with authority. They're like, hey, look, um, we know you have power, but we would associate that with Beelzebub and, and demonic power. And Jesus says, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Why, why would we do that? Why would that even find, its, find itself manifest? Luke eleven twenty. 20, Jesus says, 
But he says, you can judge for yourselves if you think that's me. But I'll tell you this, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus doesn't leave any room for doubt that it is by divine power. And even other places when he says, your sins are forgiven. And he heals people. Oh, okay. That's... That, that upsets people. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees pick up rocks when they hear that kind of talk. Why? Because that's a capital crime to claim to be one with God. They want to stone him. Not at this particular instance. They're too chicken. They're too, they're too cowardly to try to go directly after him at this point. They just want to trap him so that he'll say, yes, I'm God. They can say, okay, you're guilty. Let's take you in. And, uh, and have you drawn up on charges? Now, Jesus replies to their question with, of course, a question. Look with me again at verse 3. He says, I'll answer you if you'll answer me first. I, I will answer your question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So where is the origin and source of his power? Because he's, he's, he's aligning himself. Jesus is aligning himself with another famous, well-known, well-loved prophet of the day, John, who came... With, with just as few credentials uh, and just as much obscurity, and, but just as much authority in many ways. And yet he's the one pointing to Jesus all the while. The repentance and the baptism that he was calling people to was all to prepare the way of the Lord. And John keeps pointing to Jesus as that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So they know that people are praising him. So it's, it's, that's, that's what restrains them from jumping on this uh, you know, this, this moment to, to trap him, corner him, and take him off to, to trial. But what protects him is the common people, the people who actually were repentant, who believed in John the baptizer in, in, uh, in verse 6, who were, you know, were part of that crowd that they had feared. And yes, we could say, as I mentioned last week, that fear eventually started to fade and they became more bold and they were able to, to draw him up on charges and put him on a cross. And what was the sign above, above him? King of kings and Lord of lords. That was, not, that was not, hello, my name is, tag. Okay, I mean, that, that's like, we're mocking you, Jesus. How foolish of you. We're going to publicly shame you for claiming this. And we're going to hang you with no clothes on and beat you to a pulp in a very public place. How's that going, King of Kings? But for now, they hold off. And you could say, oh, well, it was, you know, it was, it was because they were investigating and, and it was on the basis of principle. No, they're doing this. They're holding off purely on the basis of pragmatics and convenience and optics and appearances. That's why they retreat. Look at verse seven. When he pushes the question to them, they contemplate, well, we can't say from, we can't say John's from heaven and we can't say that he's, you know, from man. Because then, then we're going to have an outrage. We're going to have, we're going to have problems on our hands. So they say in verse seven, we don't know. That's, that's a lie. That, that, that's not true. They know that John, they know that God, that Jesus is going to say it's from God. And so is John's. They already know what, the, what, what they could attribute it to. But they're saying, we don't know. They do know. The heart of repentance, turning, 
And a sincere relationship with God is what's missing. There's people going to worship all over the place, then and now. Outwardly, you know, um, you, you know, that almost it, it, it looks natural. It looks it looks good, but the heart is not there. Otherwise, they would have listened to John the Baptist. They would have been a repentant. Their worship would have been exclusively focused on God, and their worship would have been inclusively bringing in the nations, the ethne, the, the Gentiles. But none, none of that's true because their heart is obscured by a love for something else. You know how it is. You can't love everything. Wow. That was, that was profound. Yeah. You can't. God said it. You can't love both God and money. So I know I've spent some time in their world. Uh, let's come over to our world. What do we make of this, right? What do we make of Jesus's authority and Jesus' message about worship here? Well, I think given the intensity of the emotion, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean we know that the last time Jesus was there, it was explicit the temperature of, uh, of the room is the barometric pressure changed substantially and Jesus came in and he was clearly uh, angry and uh, he cast, you know, he, he was violent in the temple. This time uh, he's, he's forceful enough to say, you know, you need to get out of here. Uh, and then he begins to set up shop, rearrange the furniture and teach. It's a big deal. The, the two themes are, remember, the irony of those who opposed him and the authority of our Lord. Now I want to ask you, Two questions to try to bridge this a little bit by way of application for us. The two questions are this. One, what are we doing here on Sunday? And then the second question is, what are you doing and what are we doing on the fence on all the other days that end in why? I think you'll remember these two questions. Let me, let me just unpack for what I mean the first one is, what do we do here on Sunday? Jesus' scrutiny here concerning first century temple worship. And when he says at the close of chapter 19, quoting Isaiah 56, my house shall be a house of prayer. Do you, I don't think his scrutiny is limited just to first century temple worship. I think he has something to say to those who worship and assemble themselves to this very day. Why the Christian Sabbath? Why do we gather on the Lord's day to hear God's word with God's people so often at God's table? Why do we do that? Why do we gather with this, this diverse family, which we may not have picked otherwise, but is our family? And why is it that we don't just start a worship service with um, a prayer, yay, Jesus, you know, help our worship experience to be, you know, warm and, and fantastic. Sing us several songs, do a message, close it out. Yay, Jesus, let's head on home, bless our day and bless our week. Woo! That, that, that last part's so important. Why do we not do that? Because we're a house of prayer. We're trying to be thoughtful and deliberate and to follow the wisdom of Scripture and the people of God down through the ages. In joy, we sing 
In humility, we confess. In thanksgiving, we give. In faith, we listen and receive God's word and his sacrament. And in response, we pray the Lord's Prayer. In joy, we sing. It's, it's why we were called at the beginning from Psalm 100. Hearing God's word reverberate in the sanctuary of his people. In humility, we confess. That's why we have a prayer of confession. The psalmist guides us, Psalm 51, for you do not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And when our heart is right, it's why we have a prayer of confession. It's why we have that awkward silence. And 30 seconds isn't even hardly enough. But it's why we orient ourselves. Even the, the, even the somber moments in the context of worship. When your heart is right, we do give sacrifices. We offer up our, our money, our resources to God in faith. Like I said, we, we pray that great outline of the Lord's Prayer. We don't have to do that every Sunday. But you see, there's the thoughtfulness Now, hopefully we're coming with a heart that's ready to surrender, regardless of the externals and what's planned ahead of time. But I'll tell you, as someone who comes from an area of the world who originally comes from, this is my home now, from the South, where there are churches like Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Sometimes on the same corner, uh, or same, same side, opposite corners. There are people who go to church to see and be seen. There is a monetary blessing. There is a relational social opportunity by coming and gathering. I want to say to you, thanks for being here. (laughs) Not on account of me. Well, I guess in part. Yeah, I do. I'll tell you why in a second. But thanks for being here because it doesn't gain you anything. This, This is not about points and certainly isn't a social opportunity and then we have that other problem right because we if we watch things on television in the name of christianity we watch certain ministries and i'm not naming any but you do see some and you have this distinct impression that it has a lot more to do with money than it does with worship or ministry so what are we doing here so you're sorry, you say, come on, Pastor, I mean, cut me a break. I am here. And, and, and that's why I'm thanking you. Gold star for you. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful. I, you even got to church and you got an hour less of sleep last night. I, I, you know, way to go. I mean, for crying out loud, it is daylight savings in the spring. Some of you are students and you're saying, what am I doing here? My parents made me come here today. I feel your pain, okay? I, the, I, I grew up in a household where man, we were at, on the Lord's Day, we were with God's people morning and evening. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the whole wide world because I got to go and see God's people. I got to go and hear God's promises and God's truth. And I got to see, the Bible tells us it's in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, excuse me, 3. 
that we, the church, are a household of God, the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The older I got, the more I realized that people are fake and our culture is delusional. And inside the family of God, I saw people who were real and grounded in the truth. They knew how to handle, they knew how to handle their calling, their identity, their sexuality, their marriage. Thank you. People in our church were real people, loving people, faithful people, godly people, people with integrity. They prayed with God. They prayed to God and they walked with God. It made an impression on me. And I thank you. I do thank you for being a church like that for my own children, a church family. Thank you. sad thing for many people at that time in the temple at this point with Jesus confronting all of this was that there's this whole elaborate, you know, commercial enterprise going on, people going through the motions and the, the shortest amount of time and whatever, just, just get it over, do this, do that, do that. This, this week I was studying and Daryl Bach nailed this. He's a New Testament scholar, a commentator. He says, this cleansing of the temple took place at an institution of God that no longer exists, the temple, Right. He says, but a principle about worship surfaces in Jesus' remarks that is still valid. Even if the temple is no longer with us, worship is a sacred trust where commerce and hypocrisy have no place. Which leads me to my next question, the second question, which is, what are we doing on the fence the rest of the days of the week? Jesus holds all the authority. He spoke all of this into existence out of nothing by the power of his word. And in him, all things hold together, Colossians 1. And yet, there's so much more. He knows that the temple will be destroyed. His body, he knows that, that he will be mocked and beaten. He knows that we who trust him and not trusting in ourselves, that through that death and through that temple being torn down, we will be reconciled to a holy God and call God our Father. The religious leaders here who want to question Jesus, it's their love of money and their commerce that has grown so much that they can't see, they won't see Jesus as Messiah. They have the audacity even to go farther and to question his authority. The one who made it all, the very main focus of all of that culminating feast and symbols and, and everything that was building up to it is shadows of Christ. And then Jesus puts them in a corner with his rebuttal, his question to them. John, who is just like me, was his baptism from God or from man? And how do they respond? They punt. They evade. Why? Because they care about optics. They want... They, they care about the appearances uh, before men, for the crowds. My friends, I highlight that because we should be a people who love truth and follow the authority of Jesus in every area, every day. 
Again, Daryl Bach, this is the long quote, and I'm about to wrap up. The Christian faith is not committed to gaining the most votes, running a popularity contest, or finishing high in the polls. We must take a hard and honest stand for truth, even if it is not popular. He lives in Texas. <laughs> That's easier said than done. You know what I'm saying? I mean, come on. I mean, this is, this is, this is New England. Maneuvering to protect constituencies, as the Pharisees do here, is a sign of spiritual weakness that can kill a ministry or personal credibility. If we keep our eyes on the votes of our culture, God's truth and being honest about it usually suffer. Being truthful does not mean being callous. Doesn't mean being callous, but it does mean that we should show enough honesty to make clear where we stand and why we stand that way. Jesus is not just a good man here. The kind of benign respect our culture pays to him is not a possible category that the Bible leaves open to us. He does not at all like fence sitting. So I, I, I just want to say, we sometimes in the course of our week, in the course of our decisions and priorities and interactions, and what is the coach saying about this and what does my teacher say about that and what do my friends say about this and what does my family think about our priorities we need to do some assessment are we being vague are we being shallow are we being shy about the truth are we being half-hearted are we allowing love of things like money or people cloud our ability to embrace jesus as lord and king or in some cases have we been secretly ashamed Publicly ashamed that we are followers of Jesus. God, my friends, loves to bless and reward those who identify as his followers. And he despises living for the approval of others. When should we do this? Today. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, uh, for this encounter that was recorded by us For Luke, we pray that you would shape us to be more in submission and more in love, frankly, with King Jesus. We acknowledge that you want our gratitude, that we should bring acceptable worship and reverence and awe because you are a consuming fire. Would you forgive us, Father, our sins, our unbelief, mine, our good shepherd, the head of the church, the only head of the church, Jesus. Would you please lead us into paths of righteousness for your name's sake, that we might be a church that is a house of prayer, not confused, not compromised in any way. In our private lives, Lord, give us a hatred for sin and a love and a hunger for righteousness. Lord, in our public witness, would you make us a people who are humble and civil, people who love, people who forgive, people who are bold with the truth that's revealed to us through your will. Please bless the witness of other churches, Lord, and other ministries in this area. Lord, I want to particularly pray for the college ministry of Reformed University Fellowship, especially, Lord, on the campuses locally here of UConn and MIT and Harvard and BU. Lord, I pray you would use these ministries to continue to bring students who are asking good questions to find the satisfaction in Jesus. 
and fold them, Lord, into local churches. Thank you for this time. I thank you for this, this body of believers. What a gift. In Jesus' name we pray. And praying now, even in his name, as he taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom.